Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen, premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50% to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns. There's never been a faster or easier way to start your weight loss journey than with Plush Care. Plush Care accepts most insurance plans and gives you online access to board-certified physicians who can prescribe FDA-approved weight loss medications like Wigovi and ZepBound for those who qualify. Take charge of your health and speak with a board-certified physician about a weight loss plan that's right for you. Get started today at plushcare.com slash weight loss. That's plushcare.com slash weight loss. plushcare.com slash weight loss. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome to Histories of the Unexpected, the show where we demonstrate that everything, simply everything you can possibly think of, has its own history. Like the colour blue, shoes and umbrellas. Screws, schmooze and taboos. So it's about forbidden things. Probably like uh, me admitting that I like Made in Chelsea, uh, which I probably shouldn't do. <laughs> of glue, clue and shoe. It's about the history of chasing people away. However, that aside, we will be following the links in our minds as we come across them, explaining how those histories link together in unexpected ways. As always, who knew that the history of balconies is in fact all about politics and propaganda, eavesdropping on the royal family. It's also about Winston Churchill, Adolf Hitler and Benito Mussolini. And... The Globe Theatre, popular misconceptions about Shakespeare's brilliant play, Romeo and Juliet. And of course, in lockdown, it's all about Italian spirit of community. Or that the history of slobbering, which is one of our recent homeschooling episodes, is in fact all about James VI and I, King of Scotland and England. It's also about disease and insanity, the history of teething. Did you know that... In the early modern period, the 16th and 17th century, it was recommended that rabbits' brains be crushed up and rubbed on the infants, on the gums of infants. It's also about much, much more. The man... Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I was just going to say that we're doing the history of blame in a minute as well. I'm very excited about that. We're going to do the history of blame, which is all about the Versailles Treaty. That's another of our kids' ones. It's, it's your fault, Sam, that we're doing that. <laughs> Do you know what, James? I've literally written this under the line that it's James's fault that we're doing that. <laughs> Great minds think alike. Great minds think alike. Excellent. Um, and we're doing breath next for some reason. Breath, yeah. Oh, breath. it's so good. Have you seen? There's um, there's so much on the cultural history of breath. I haven't even started to do my very early morning and midnight reading for this yet. No, I was kind of slightly obsessed about it now. And I've, I've missed a couple of histories, uh, conferences on the history of breath, which I I, try, oh. I want to go to. I'm going to see if I've, they've got I, some... Um... I thought it was you getting all macabre and wanting to do all these coronavirus-related <laughs> things and people, you know, short of breath and running out of breath. And it was about the end of lives and that sort of thing. And I thought, oh, do we really need to be doing that? We need something a little more light and frothy. And then I thought... Uh, a breath of fresh air. That's what very I nice. Very Love nice. That. 
Well, um, yeah, well, that's coming up as well. But uh, today, well, let's introduce ourselves first. Yes. Uh, the man sitting opposite me, uh, let's just say if, if history was a kiss, he would be the tongues. <laughs> and does he have a name? <laughs> no. It's Professor Extraordinaire of Early Modern British History at Plymouth University. It's James Daybell. Hello, James. Hello, Sam. Our minds are working in tandem because the man not sitting opposite me, because he is on the other side of town. Well, if he were personified as a kiss, he'd be a chaste peck on the cheek. So ah. fine and upstanding a historian is he. Of course, it is the famous historical adventurer, Dr Sam Willis. Are you well, Sam? Yes, very well. Um, I'm in my shed. Uh, Excellent. Looking down, looking down the garden, which is looking a picture. It is a, a, ah. um, as if spring has kissed my garden. Oh, lovely, lovely. Today we are doing the history of kissing which is semi-inspired by the lockdown and coronavirus. We're doing themes which maybe some are directly inspired by it, like our episodes on boredom and isolation. Um, but, you know, I think kissing's quite, quite relevant for as me, well. For me, it was not inspired by that directly. For me, <laughs> kissing is because there was a book on my shelf that I've been meaning to read for a long time called The Kiss in History, edited by Karen Harvey. And we just read her book on the rabbits and Mary Toft. And one of the things that I'm trying to do during lockdown is I'm trying to read as widely as possible, very early in the morning and very late at night. So for me, this was where the kiss came from. And the just book a, was brilliant. Uh, just a point there about being a historian, James talking about the importance of reading widely. Um, we, we did a little series um, some time ago now on how to be a historian and all of those who are twiddling their thumbs in lockdown um, do please check that out because it's quite inspirational we think and about um, suggest ways you can get into history even if you're not a trained historian that's the whole point we're thinking about an area of citizen history and everyone can get involved and do you know what James I think we should do another uh, another episode on how to be a historian we should do that quite soon but reading widely is really important so that you can um, put ideas and thoughts and events into much broader context it's one of the key things you need to be doing as a historian so James may well be an expert on the Judah period, but he's written, um, or he's, he's reading here about whatever it might be, rabbits or kisses, and it all helps, it all helps. Read, 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 don't stop. It, nothing like so earnest for me uh, and so devout. I'm, I'm simply enjoying myself. I feel like I'm back at university again when I'd have read a different subject each week, so I'm having, you know, I'm having great fun in lockdown. Good stuff. Um, so today, the history of kissing, how are we going to do that? Well, I'm going to start with... Uh, uh, sort of taxonomy of kisses. Did you know that in Frankfurt, 1680, there was a massively fat volume of over a thousand closely packed pages penned, which outlined all the different types of kisses that the author Martin von Kemp, a German polymath, had assembled. And he put together things from classical, biblical, patristic, ecclesiastical, legal, medical and other learned kisses. And this all comes from a fantastic afterword by Sir Keith Thomas in this brilliant book, The Kiss in History. So these kisses included the mystical kiss, the kiss of veneration, the kiss of peace, kisses bestowed on Christians, by Christians on images and relics, by pagans on idols, the kisses given to each other by early Christians as a sign of peace, the kiss of homage and subjection, so in feudal times, the fact that you were showing fealty to somebody, 
the kissing of the Pope's foot, the kiss bestowed on by superiors on inferiors, the kiss used in academic degree ceremonies, the lover's kiss, the lustful and adulterous kiss, the kiss exchanged by couples sealing their marriage vows, the kiss between close friends and relations, the kiss of reconciliation, the healing kiss, the kiss carrying contagion, which is very topical for today, the valedictory kiss given to the dead and the dying, and the hypocritical kiss and the kiss of Judas. So in other words, there are a ton of different ways of looking at it. And you can add more to this, as Keith Thomas does here. He says, for kisses can take so many different forms. They can be given in private or in public by men to men, men to women, women to women, adults to children, or children to each other. They can be unilateral or reciprocated. They can be on the lips, on the cheek, on both cheeks, on the hand, on the foot, or on any other part of the body. They can be given to objects or to one's own hand, or blown in the air. They can be bestowed with the lips open or closed, with the tongue projected, or merely by touching on the cheeks. They can be silent or they can be delivered with an audible smacking noise. They can be a solitary gesture or they may accompany an embrace or a handshake. So it's all there about the contextualization of the kiss. Within the prescriptions of any particular ritual, they can be prolonged or perfunctory, solemn or satirical, deft or clumsy. Even erotic kissing can take many forms, as medieval clerical confessors were well aware. In other words, there is an infinity of different ways in which a kiss can be delivered, and its meaning both to participants and to onlookers will vary accordingly. It can express deference, obedience, respect, agreement, Reverence, adoration, friendliness, affection, tenderness, love, superiority, inferiority, even insult. There is no such thing as a straightforward kiss. With that, I drop the mic and, <laughs> and exit the building. There is no need to go on. What a brilliant... I mean, Keith Thomas is one of my very, very favourite historians. I think it would be improper to say that I am a Keith Thomas fanboy, um, uh, well, such, I think you are. <laughs> such, a thing, such a thing I should not say. But uh, I think he is one of the great historians uh, that has written over the last century. And I find, I find his books just so brilliant in their, in their breadth, their scope. They're so well written. The man has sat down in the Bodleian Library and, and more or less devoured um, its entire contents over his, over his lifetime. And then puts these down in... Uh, in in, in brilliant books. So check out his afterword on the kiss in history. More you will should, come back about that. You should blow him a kiss, James. <laughs> uh, from... I wouldn't. I wouldn't do such. I wouldn't do such a thing. But the point to make there is that nuances of gestures like kissing are, are very infinite. And for historians, one of the things that we that we need to think about is how you reconstruct the meaning of that of that of that act. You know, if you think about how anthropologists work today, anthropologists are out in the field, can can see these th kinds of things going on within societies, can contextualise their meaning. But as historians, we are very separated from physical acts that happened hundreds of years ago or or thousands of years ago. And it's and it's think it's it's interesting 
to think about how we reconstruct that. And even if we were to act like anthropologists and to go around in Britain today or around the world today and to ask people to talk about kissing and to say rules of kissing, I think they would be vastly different, you know, dependent on all sorts of different circumstances, sex, gender, age, you know, political persuasion, sexuality or whatever, you know, in terms of who to kiss, how, when and in what kind of hierarchy. And it's interesting thinking about that. It's interesting thinking about how we write about kisses from the perspective of the historian. What kinds of sources survive? A kiss is a is a physical gesture that happens at a particular point in time. And how does the residue of that, how does it how does it survive in the written record? And there's a wealth of evidence that you can use so from plays, poems. You can look at court documents, court depositions, letters, diaries, paintings, state papers, all sorts of uh, fictional literature like novels. It's in medical treatises, um, courtesy books, autobiographies, theological writings, all sorts of things. The list is endless. The problem, though, for the historian is that when you are studying, say, a particular topic, if you want to study Winston Churchill, you go to the Winston Churchill archives, massive body of papers, and you immerse yourself in that. How do you start writing about the history of the kiss when there is no kiss archive? And so back to what you were saying earlier on about breadth of reading, that in order to study the kiss, you are having to read radially in order to pick up all these different clues from across a variety of sources and archives. Really interesting stuff, that, isn't it? It means you, you tend to be more involved in um, personal diaries and to be, be, you know, it's so exciting when you can't come across a chance description of the thing you're looking for. And it makes history much more challenging that way. But I think infinitely more rewarding when you suddenly come across a reference to, say, a kiss in a 18th century diary and then you've come across something else in the 17th century and so on. So there's a, a certain degree of chance there, but um, it's so rewarding when you actually manage to construct a history that way, isn't it? Yeah, I mean, and it's probably much more easy to do that kind of thing now in the age of digital research. You know, before search engines where you can put in key terms, so you could go to a collection of, you know, literary works for a particular period, fully digitised, you shove in the term kiss and it comes up, you go to the state papers online, you shove in a search term kiss and it would bring it all up. It's very different from back in the day when that didn't exist. And you, there was no shortcut to simply just wading your way through it. Yeah. Um, um, so it means you can do things like search for, um, you could do the kiss in Shakespeare very yeah. easily because there are yeah. ways of, of searching Shakespeare, all of his works, by just typing in a word. The yeah. same with, with Dickens, the same with whoever it might be. There are some really, really impressive digitising of resources, which means that the kiss is an example of how historians have been able to change the way they write through technology. So it's not just about us professional historians twiddling our thumbs and go, oh, why don't we do the history of sneezing or whatever it might be? Yeah. It's because the technology has allowed that to happen. And it's only really in the last, I don't know, 15 years, a stretch, isn't it? Yeah, it is. I mean, one of the dangers of it is that basically if you go, if you swoop in and do a sort of hit and run exercise like that, what you what often you find with studies that do that kind of thing is that they miss a lot of the, the sort of deeper learning and context uh, of that that older studies have had. But one, but to move on, one of the interesting things is about how is to think about how 
kisses have meaning, different meanings in different contexts and different um, different occasions, different societies. And also to think about how that meaning changed across time, um, even though it's even though it's uh, a sort of rough and ready way of things. But but if we have an attempt to sort of look at how the meaning of the kiss changed over the last you know, couple of thousand years, there is a there is an argument that basically the kiss started off as something that was quite ceremonial. Most kisses were ceremonial. And if you look at the that if you look at the changing nature of kiss over time, in the modern period it's become increasingly erotic, erotically charged. It's romantic. Now this is probably a slightly too crude um and slightly too sort of linear in that in that there's that change because i think you if you looked in earlier periods you could certainly find erotic kisses and you can certainly find um you know ceremonial kisses today i have a question for you sam yeah have you ever kissed an archbishop's ring <laughs> no oh i have <laughs> i once met um robert runcie um and and he proffered uh, his uh, his uh, archbishoply hand uh, with his ring, and I was uh, I think I was in, in I think I was <laughs> expected to kiss it. <laughs> <laughs> well, it's interesting I, that the, um, the maybe it was just... a social faux pas at the time. Maybe it was he, he was, <laughs> was supposed to shake his hand. He was proffering <laughs> me his hand to shake, and I and I um I I I, I can't remember what happened. So um, maybe I, he was just hungry and wanted wanted some of the jaffa cakes you were holding. Maybe that was it. Maybe that was it. The the um, chocolate covered hobnobs. But actually, interestingly, um, the kiss there it can mark a moment in your own history, can't it? Um, it's yes. something that that you remembered. It's a it's a sort of an intimate and a personal thing, and you maybe felt a bit weird kissing this guy's hand. Um, uh, but then I suppose there's the, your first kiss. I'm sure you remember that. I remember mine. I but do. The kiss, the kiss is a, a very a very it can be a really key moment in marking stages in your own personal history. Perhaps you've lost someone. And we talked about this a little in our podcast on death as well. So the last time you maybe made, had physical contact with someone who then passed. Um, and kissing is an important part of that as well. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. So I'm going to start somewhere else. This Excellent. is um, This is fascinating stuff. I love this. Uh, I came across this story. And um, it was I, I started off thinking about kisses, about whether, you know, it generally being a good thing, um, a, a nice memory. And I came across one where it definitely isn't a nice memory. But even more interestingly than that, it is generally considered as a nice memory by most people in the world who are mm. aware of famous imagery of the Second World War. Mm. So I'm talking about a very famous kiss between a sailor and a nurse on Times Square in v, on VJ Day. Victory over Japan Day in 1945 in America. Can you picture that in your head, James? I can, yes. Yep. Um, so you've got the nurse in her white nurse's outfit, sailor with his hat on, very distinctive, leaning over her, giving her a massive great great snog, basically, in the middle of, of Times Square. What's fascinating about this is it was, it was, it was published in Life magazine, um, and it became an iconic image of the of a sort of a good war of, of this moment of celebration. It's something I've become interested in recently because of forthcoming uh, VE Day events. And I've been looking at material and uh, videos and audio relating to public celebrations in Trafalgar Square, outside Buckingham Palace, all over the streets of London. This is the American equivalent. And it's it's a 
split second moment in time that's been captured and which has been taken to symbolise so many things about it. But there, there is a, there's a deeper story, a hidden story to it as well. There's a statue of that image, of that kiss, or a couple actually in America, and one of them is in Sarasota in Florida. And someone recently graffitied it with the hashtag MeToo up the leg of the nurse. Hmm. And what happened is that the, 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 they found out who the people were doing this, this distinctive kiss. And the man, the sailor, was a guy called George Mendonca, and he died recently. And his death has actually encouraged people or created a certain amount of spontaneity in investigating what was going on. The lady was Greta Zimmer, who uh, later be, uh, became Greta, Greta Friedman. And what they had, what they've started to do was that they they investigated what was going on here, and the hashtag Me Too things really, really interesting because it opens up an entirely different narrative on what happened on that day and whether that kiss was in any way consensual, hmm. uh, and it wasn't. And it allows you to look into and explore the behaviour of. Um, I could say, I could do it more broadly, men in uniform in the war. Mm. Um, and I think, you know, the key thing here is, is whether, once we, we know about this story, I'm going to go into a minute, is whether we look at that image and whether we should think about it in the same way we have done. Um, Gre the key point here is that Greta was, the woman in the photograph, she was far from the only person who was in some way uh, uh, groped or kissed, yes, assaulted, however you might want to describe it, on that day in America. And if you think about what would have happened had these people been dressed differently, it's really interesting. So if the man, if, if Mendonca had been in civilian clothing and he had just run up to, to a woman in nurse's clothing and uh, grabbed her in a very strong, aggressive embrace, um, or essentially pushed her backwards. If you look at the image, she's not swooning. He's basically got her in a headlock and she's trying to pull her skirt down. Um, he, the police would have been called if he had been in civilian clothing. If he'd done it to another man, he would have probably been dishonourably discharged from the military, could have been institutionalised. Um, if he'd been black and he'd done that to a white woman, he may have been beaten, um, may have even been killed. And... Well, the background here is that is that Mendonca has just finished a a a, a big um, time of sea duty in the Pacific, where he was a quartermaster on the USS ship the Sullivans, and was very fearful about going back. So news of the surrender was was uh, hugely important to him and to his friends. So they all went out drinking in Times Square, where well, drinking in London, and went to celebrate in Times Square, which is where the photographer Alfred Eisenstadt took this photograph and Alfred described what was going on. He said he saw this sailor running along the street, grabbing any and every girl in sight. And when Mendonca reached this woman in white, he, he gave her a, a huge kiss. But then if you look at what Greta's perspective was, it completely changes. It wasn't my choice to be kissed, she said. This guy just came over and grabbed me. Then a reporter asked her what she thought at the time. She said, well, I just, I hope I can breathe. I mean, somebody much bigger than you and much stronger when you've lost control. I'm not sure that that makes you happy. 
And there's a much more detailed interview here, which was taken from Greta in 2005. I just want to 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 um, give you a few few excerpts from it. It's fascinating. So this is Greta being interviewed um, much, much later on in her life, 60 years later. I was working in a dental office on Lexington Avenue for two brothers, and all morning long people would come in and say there seemed to be rumours that the war is ending. I wasn't very far from Times Square. I could just walk over there and see for myself. So after my bosses came back at one o'clock from their lunch hour, I went straight to Times Square, where I saw on the lighted billboard that goes around the building, VJ Day, VJ Day. And that suddenly really confirmed what the people have said in the office. And then suddenly I was grabbed by a sailor. It wasn't that much of a kiss. It was more of a jubilant act that he, he didn't have to go back, I found out later. He was so happy that he did not have to go back to the Pacific, where they'd already been through so much in the war. And the reason he grabbed someone dressed like a nurse was that he just felt very grateful to nurses who took care of the wounded. So I had to go back to the office and I told my bosses what I had seen. They said, cancel all the appointments, we're closing the office. So I left and I cancelled all the appointments and went home. The interviewer asks, how old were you at this time? She says, I was 21, just 21. And who was the sailor who kissed you? I haven't got a clue, she said. He didn't give me his name or anything. And I didn't see the picture until the 1960s. That's fascinating. So she doesn't even know that she's one of these iconic images of the war. OK, let's go back to the kissing sailor. When he grabbed you and gave you a kiss, what did you feel like? I felt he was very strong. He was just holding me tight. And I'm not sure about the kiss. It's just somebody really celebrating. But it wasn't a romantic event. It was just an event of thank God the war is over kind of thing because it was right in front of the sign. Did he say anything when he kissed you? No, it was just an act of silence. So he just grabbed you, gave you a kiss and was gone. Yes, we both left. We both went on our way. I found out later that he and his fiance, I think at the time, were there, probably engaged. They had come from Radio City Music Hall. So this whole escapade is actually witnessed by his fiance, who you can see in the background of the photograph. So it's a fascinating way of rethinking one of these iconic images. And it also opens up into a window into the behaviour of um, of soldiers and sailors, aircraft, men, men in uniform during the war. In fact, um, a fascinating book's been written by the historian Mary Louise Roberts, who's focused on just this key idea in on American GIs in France. It's called What Sailors Do, Sex and the American GI in World War II France. And if you want to have a look at that, it's absolutely fascinating. And it looks at not only the behaviour of the French soldiers, but the behaviour of the French women, the... Um, the understanding of what was allowable by by the Americans in France and also what happens afterwards. A huge wave of rape accusations um, strikes the US Army about how their soldiers behaved. And they had a, a response where a lot of it was basically the um, African-American soldiers were disproportionately blamed. Uh, many of them were hanged in France. Um, it's a fascinating little um, sort of micro history of this, this broader theme. There you go, James. Excellent. Excellent. Love it. So it's all about the power dynamics, power relations behind the kiss, whether it is predatory or whether it is consensual or not. But that's a brilliant sort of way of... of of taking one particular kiss and then mapping it onto the Second World War. Now, 
I want to do something slightly related to this. I want to look at queering uh, the First World War. And by that, I mean what I want to do is I want to look at the uh, incident of incidents of men kissing each other during the First World War. And this is explored in a brilliant essay uh, by a historian called Santanu Das. And it's an essay called Kiss Me Hardy, The Dying Kiss in the First World War Trenches. And it's a really, really um, sophisticated piece of scholarship. Uh, I think it's very sort of literary if, you're, if your tastes are that way. So lots of sort of very close readings of terms and things. But I think what it, what it looks at is the way in which particular men would kiss each other in particular circumstances during this period. Now, it doesn't mean that it's not necessarily homoerotic and, and sexually charged. A lot of this activity is heterosexual and homosocial. And we pick it up in letters and memoirs of the period, in fictional works, by writers who self-identified, in other words, they thought of themselves as heterosexual and straight, as well as writers who would have seen themselves as queer at this time. And the backdrop to this, of course, is that um, homosexuality and, and particularly sexual acts like, like sodomy were outlawed. And it's not too long since we had the, um, the trial of Oscar Wilde. Um, so that's the sort of backdrop of it. But I want to, I want to sort of start by, talk, by um, talking about some of the sources that are used, because a lot of this comes from very personal material. And there are all sorts of collections of correspondence that survive for the First World War. So if you were having a look at particular themes, the way that you would approach it is by going to these great swathes of correspondence and reading through for particular themes. And this is a letter from a lieutenant called Frank Cocker, and he's written it to his girlfriend, Evelyn. Um, he's written it from the, the trenches, and he refers to kissing uh, another man in a, in a ritual exchange, a, what he describes as a tender salute, and he refers to his friend as his dear Charlie. As we arrived at the barn door, he said, just a moment, Frank, before we go in, I've got something else to give you. Put that light out. I put the lamp out and into my pocket, wondering what was coming. Then I felt an arm around my neck and the dear lad kissed me at once. That's from Evelyn, in other words, Cocker's fiance, he said. Then he kissed me again and said, that's from your mother. I returned his tender salute and said, that's from me. There we were, two men like a couple of girls, but then there was no one about and the matter was a sacred one between us and you. Now, the thing to do is to actually think about how you contextualise that. You've got two men who are, you know, probably self-identify as heterosexual, but there is this degree of homoeroticism here. There's this sense that it's something that needs to be kept secret, something that is sacred between them. And I think the way of thinking about this is that if there's been a lot of work that has looked at the camaraderie in the trenches, you know, often we see the trenches as bloody and mud and you see them through C3 Sassoon and Wilfred Owen's brilliant poems, but it's a devastating time death, depravity everywhere, the dying, the sick, tending to people. 
in actual fact, if you read somebody like Joanna Burke on this, it there is a degree of very intimate, close, tactile male friendships and actually touching each other in a physical and tender way that isn't sexualized was very, very common, very, very prevalent because you were, you know, you were seeing each other blown up, dying, naked, limbs everywhere. And this, the other thing is that this idea about there's a very strong image of giving our mother's kiss that you see recurring again and again. And it's almost like, you know, in letters you'd see, you know, give give my kiss to so-and-so. And so passing on this very sort of comforting maternal kiss is quite common. Um, and then another way of thinking about it is the dying kiss. And there's a model for of the dying kiss from the previous century, from uh, the dying words of Nelson, kiss me hardy, which became a national symbol for camaraderie among 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 troops, among soldiers, among sailors. And I think this is a model also that people use. And the dying kiss can be found in, in various literary works, but also in some more personal, uh, what we might call ego documents. In other words, documents that are written by an individual. And here we can think about letters or diaries. And there's, a, there's an extract from a Reverend Oakenden uh, to his wife. Um, and he writes, I've got a little secret. One dear lad, very badly wounded, said, hello, Padre, old sport. And then, come and kiss me, Padre. And he put a, his arms around me and kissed me. And the, Rev the Reverend Connor writes on the 22nd of December, 1914, I prayed to God for the dear lad. I said, I'll give you our mother's kiss. Let me do it. And the dear lad kissed me. And then he, he sort of, he, he died. And then so there are all sorts of ways in which in which there's this sort of the, the ritualistic sort of male bonding uh, presence of the kiss as one is leaving the world becomes, you know, not sexually charged in a sense, not not erotic, but it is a passing on of a sort of, of a mother's kiss and saying goodbye to somebody. So there we are. I take your Second World War and um, apply it in a slightly different way. To the First World War. So where do you go from the First World War, Sam? Uh, well, I go to the Second World War. <laughs> I've, um, back to the Second I, World War. Brilliant. Back to the Second World War. Um, yes, yeah, so I just found some really, really great things in the Second World War. So uh, this is quite World War Two-y. Uh, mm. So apologies for that, everyone who's not interested in the war. But um, I, I trust, trust me, this is really, really genuinely interesting. How do you sign letters? I, I know exactly how you sign emails, James. You write hugs. Yes, I do. I do. Yes. Why, do you, why do you do that? Only to only to close friends. Yeah. I wouldn't I wouldn't do it to wouldn't do it to close female friends. Uh, I just do it to male friends. It's all about uh, homosocial bonding. Very good. Very good. Um, I've become interested in people signing off letters with kisses. Ah. And I've got a couple of, of cracking examples just because of of how powerful it is as a sign of a person being really sort of touching and human hmm. and in direct contrast to what they're actually doing. And what has made me think about this is, we're going back to Tel Aviv, James. I talked <laughs> about Tel Aviv, my, my new favourite city in, in our episode on balconies. In Tel Aviv, there are some letters written by Heinrich Himmler. 
hmm. which were smuggled out of Germany. We think they were taken by a couple of American soldiers. They went back to the States. They possibly were bought by um, a Jewish Holocaust survivor, possibly from a flea market later on. It's a bit of uncertainty about the origin of some of these notebooks. But they've ended up in a vault in Tel Aviv. They were recently published in um, the German newspaper Die Welt in 2014. So these are previously unpublished letters by Heinrich Himmler. Heinrich Himmler, um, for those of you who don't know, he's the chief of the, the SS. Um, he is the Reichskommissioner for the consolidation of the German race. He's almost single-handedly responsible for the architecture of, of the Holocaust. And some of the letters that he wrote are fascinating. These are letters that he wrote to his to his either his wife, Margaret, or his mistress, who was called Hedwig. Hmm. Um, here's one. This is a love letter to Hedwig, who is his, his secretary, later becomes his mistress. And it's just very simple. It finishes off. I'm going to Auschwitz. Kisses, your Heine. And the next one. In the next few days, this is to his wife. In the next few days, I'll be in Lublin. Zamosk, Auschwitz, Lviv, and then in the new quarters. I'm curious if how I will be able to phone. It will probably be around 2,000 kilometres to Gmund. All the best. Have a nice trip and enjoy your days with our little daughter. Many warm greetings and kisses. Your daddy. So that's actually written to his daughter in July 1942. And I think it's a really powerful way of just seeing how of seeing how ordinary the people were who are who were the architects of the Holocaust. And you see a very different part of Himmler. It's one of these letters that encourages you, inspires you to look at a different part of his life. And so you don't see the Himmler who was in charge of the SS. You see him as this conservative, well-educated Bavarian brought up in a middle-class family. He was a monarchist when, when, he, when he grew up. Um, his father was a, was, a, was a head teacher, a bit like you, James. Yes. Um, uh, head teacher in Munich. Um, and he'd even been the educator of the Wittelsbach Prince, which is, I think, fascinating, um, who became the namesake and the godfather of, of Heinrich Himmler himself. So you've got this idea of, of Himmler and his schooling, I think, is really important. Someone taught him to, to write letters properly, to end them with, with, with notions of love, like kisses. We know he went to the humanist schools in Munich and Landshut. He graduated from high school after the First World War, became a student of agricultural science at the Technical University of Munich in 1919. He had a reputation of being industrious. Um, and so... It's so crucial, I think, when writing biographies to get a sense of the different types of people that you're uh, different, different the personalities within one person. And I think this idea of Himmler, one of the biggest monsters in the 20th century, writing letters, signing them off kisses is a really, really effective and powerful way to do that. Uh, I also thought it was interesting. He was writing the word kisses rather than doing X, 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 X. Yeah. Um, do you know anything about that from your material culture? Oh, oh do I know anything about that, Sam? <laughs> do I know? We could have oh an entire everyone turn off We could have an entire episode on this. Two very good examples. Um, one is of Henry VIII, another tyrant, so this time 16th century. Um, in love letters to Anne Boleyn, uh, uh, writes uh, that he wants to kiss her lovely duckies. Uh, duckies being uh, a sort of euphemism for breasts. And one of my favourite letters is from a woman called Maria Thin, who uh, lived in Longleat, uh, the, that wonderful um, house 
um, in Wiltshire. And she writes to her husband signing off um, that she sends him a thousand, 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 thousand uh, wanton kisses, uh, mm. which for that time is very, very, very erotic at a time when when correspondence is nothing like that. But I want to take you from uh, Himmler and the Second World War in another sort of demonic way. And I want to talk about um, something called the Osculum in Fame, which is the kiss of shame or the obscene kiss, which is... All, I love it. I don't know anything about it, but which, I love it already. Which is all to do with witches. And one of the things that recurs in a lot of the literature that is produced about witches and witchcraft, so if we have a look at the depositions of witches in the witch trials, one of the things that keeps recurring is this idea of the forbidden or obscene kiss. And it is generally the way in which they kiss the devil. It's one of the sort of recurring themes. And I'll start with a little little extract from uh, questions that were asked of a uh, German witch in the early 1600s called Walburger Nab. What a wonderful name. And the answer that she gives to their question is, when the dance finished, one bent before the ram sitting in the chair and had to kiss it reverentially on the behind. In other words, what you've got here is a group of witches gathering together in a ritualised Sabbath and placing an obscene kiss on a dirty part of the body, so an unclean part of the body, of an animal. In this case, a ram that was meant to represent the devil. And this is a very classical way in which people, people categorised witchcraft behaviour. But it starts much earlier than that, in, in, in uh, the second century. Um, and we can trace it back to the way in which um, pagans characterised rumours about their Christian neighbours. And we find this in a work by the Christian apologist um, Minuntius Felix, who in his book Octavius describes how early Christians were thought, it was rumoured by pagans, to worship the head of a donkey and they reverenced the genitals of their priests. They also performed ritual infanticide, cannibalism and orgies. And then this, this idea is quite early. It is then developed throughout the medieval period. And we see it recurring again and again and again as ways of, of criticising Jews. Um, it crops up against the Knights Templar. But in one of its most descriptive forms, we find it being used by an English cleric, Walter Mapp, when he describes the synagogues or gatherings of some former French heretics, the Valdensians. And he writes, About the first watch of the night, when gates, doors and windows have been closed, the groups sit waiting in silence in their respective synagogues, and a black cat of marvellous size climbs down a rope which hangs in their midst. On seeing it, they put out the lights. They do not sing hymns or repeat them distinctly, but hum through clenched teeth and pantingly feel their way toward the place 
where they see their Lord. In other words, the cat is representing the devil. When they have found him, they kiss him, each the more humbly as he is inflamed by frenzy, some the feet, more under the tail, most the private parts. So there's this idea about sexu sexuality and bestiality and planting kisses in erotic areas on animals. So it's, it's a really sort of crude way of characterising uh, people whose religious beliefs that you don't believe in. Pope Gregory the Ninth in 1233 believed that the novices who were received into this heretical sect of the Valdensians, they had to kiss three different creatures as part of their rites. The first they had to kiss was an enormous toad or sometimes a goose or a duck, which they kissed both on the behind and on the mouth. Then the second figure is a mysterious being with coal black eyes who was pale and thin and seemed, you know, merely skin and bone. Um, on kissing him, you would forget your Catholic faith. And then the black cat comes down as we've sort of as we've talked about it already. And so this is the way in which they set up this sort of the this sort of um, this Sabbath gathering. And we can see this in various of the images or the woodcuts that are produced from this period. There's a an early or me medieval um, picture of a uh, not early medieval, but a picture from 1460, around 1460, which shows the Valdensians adoring the devil in the form of a goat. And it's not just um, people that are applying, that are kissing the parts of the devil. Um, it's not just that. We also see images of the devil in, as uh, figured as animal or sometimes as uh, as dragon kissing uh, the followers. So, for example, there is a an early 16th century woodcut uh, which represents a young witch being kissed by a dragon. So this dragon sticks his long tongue into the witch's vagina from behind. So it's quite a graphic image. Now, what does all this mean? What do all these images mean? I mean, there are other woodcuts of, of people kissing uh, the behinds of goats. So there's a picture woodcut here with devils dancing around with hands in the air and flames on their fingers, people marching around and dancing with devils in orgiastic fashion. And on a three-legged stool in the centre, a goat is seated with a woman bent over kissing his behind. But what do all of these mean? Now, I think part of it is about, it's about debauchery, it's about defilement, it's about dem demonstrating the domination of and reverence to the devil in opposition to an ordered Christian church. So it's showing fealty and adoration to the devil. I also think the argument that uh, is made in this essay that I read in The Kiss in History, which is where this is all coming from, by a brilliant historian called Jonathan Durant, is that actually it's a subversion of the Eucharist. So if you think the Eucharist is that time when in a, a, a Christian church, one one literally, uh, in sort of cannibalistic fashion, takes the body and blood of Christ. And it, what it does is it, it subverts that. And in fact, what you are doing is you are, you know, the the kind of the 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 sexual acts with the devil 
the cannibalistic feast that we have, the sort of the obscene kiss, um, is the, the confession of sins to the devil that is all part of this witch's Sabbath are an inversion of what happens in the Eucharist. So the confession of sins and this sort of taking on of the body and blood of Christ. So there we are. There's, um, there's the kiss and witchcraft. I absolutely love that. It's fascinating. The, the different ways you can take, you can explore and, and, and try and find out more about. Yes. Hmm. I had more, uh, but I'm going, to do that. I'm going to do that when we talk about breath. Oh, oh, very good. Okay, yes. yeah, looking forward to that. We'll do that next. Um, thanks all you so much for listening, guys. Um, if you'd like to help us out, do please check out patreon.com forward slash histories of the unexpected, where you can choose to be a knight and dame for $2, a lord and lady for $5, or a prince and princess for $10 per month. And that would help us enormously for all sorts of technology and time and paying for recording studios, all things like that, which we're trying to do to improve the quality of our podcast. It does take a great deal of time and effort. We love it very much, but we'd really appreciate any help you can offer us. Also, please do leave a review on iTunes. It makes a huge difference. Uh, you can follow me on Twitter. I'm at Dr. Sam Willis. And you can follow me at James Daybell. And you can follow the podcast at Unexpected Pod. And you can follow us on our website called historiesoftheunexpected.com. That's right. And um, one other last final shout out to any history teachers there, anyone who knows any history teachers. We've been doing, and we've done 15 episodes now, haven't we, James, in we our have. homeschooling series. They're enormous fun and uh, we're really useful and we think they're going to make a bit of a difference. So do please pass the word on their sources and resources people could use in the classroom and use for homeschooling. That's it. Thanks a lot, guys. Bye. Bye.